would like for you for a moment, as you find 2 Corinthians in your Bible, I want you to just to hover over that fourth chapter for a moment. And it's the lead up to what we're going to see in chapter 5. And I want you to notice something. Let's just kind of helicopter for just a few seconds here. That what we are noticing in this section is the Apostle Paul is encouraging himself as well as his readers in saying not to lose heart, not to lose heart, not to lose heart. Be of good courage, be of good courage. These are the refrains that you find through 4 and on down in through the 5th chapter. And he begins in the 4th chapter by speaking in thanksgiving of the joy and the wonder it is for him to be able to participate in declaring the gospel, this new covenant message that God had given to him. And also what buoyed him, if you look in that fourth chapter, track with me and you'll see it come out, that he describes the message. It's one of giving life, life to believers. Those who are unbelievers receive this life and it changes everything. And then from there he goes to speak of the glory of it all, the way in which the perfections of God are demonstrated through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet there are obstacles and hardships. But he meets those with some kind of gusto. They don't destroy him. He keeps moving on, not losing heart. And then you can notice at the very end of the fourth chapter where he, uh, momentary light affliction, why he lives with the eye of faith on his, on these eternal issues, concentrating on them. And Paul's pressing through a lot of difficulties. I mean, if we've, went over to the 11th chapter and you just go through all of the um, the hurdles that he has to deal with and the, the stress and the strain and the problems. The question then is, what in the world motivated Paul? What motivated him to press on, to press on, to press on? And he did all that without any modern conveniences, need I remind us, <laughs> and that he did it over land and and see, and he did it on foot and horseback and in ships, and he was in shipwrecks and danger from robbers and on and on and on. What motivated him? Now, motivation is an interesting thing. It makes people do a lot of, uh, a lot of extreme things. You probably here tonight, everybody here has some story of motivation, whether it's, I think, of playing a musical instrument. You Somewhere along the line, you young people said, now, that's what I want to do. And you begin to move in that direction. It takes a lot of hours of going through uh, every good boy does fine, all cows eat grass, you know, and you get those, you try to get your chords and get them and practice and practice, and you master a chord and add a chord in motivation to do that. And we all have our motivation stories. You wouldn't be here if we didn't have variations of that theme. I have a little schoolboy example of a motivation. It's just, it's, it's really a minor thing, but it was big at the time when I was probably, when I was in eighth grade. And uh, I wanted to play basketball really, really terribly. I just thought basketball was something about the whole atmosphere in a gymnasium and all the in-close uh, competition and the excitement. And I'd been to basketball games as an eighth grader in high school, you know, I'd Seen what it was like, and oh, I went, so I went out for basketball. Ah, oh, gave it my best, but then I looked around and I began to realize, you know, a lot of these guys have been playing basketball, and I'm just out here. 
And what do you do? And it, it's a skill game. And I thought some athletic ability might help me a little bit, but I remember going to that board, and we had a cut system. And you'd go to practice, and if your name was up there, it means you could come to the next one. And, well, it didn't take but a couple of times, and I went after a practice, and I remember it was a cold, windy night, and I was cut. Oh, I was devastated. And I walked that long mile home. But, you know, I got motivated. I got motivated. Somehow I came upon old rubber basketball. It was not nearly a state of the art. I mean, this was, what, the early 50s. And, and I got, had this basketball. And it, it was really kind of an odd-shaped thing at times. You know, it could get a little bubble on the side. But, and there was a park right down the uh, hill from where I lived, not far at all, and there were a couple of, uh, there was an asphalt court and two goals, and hardly anybody was ever down there, and there was a creek that ran right along the edge of it. I was motivated. Okay, I am going to learn to shoot. I would go down there every day, and this was, it was cold weather, and, you know, you're trying to dribble, and it was wet at times, and you're trying to dribble a basketball, and, and, they, and the hooks on the baskets, they didn't have any net, Okay, if any of you have done that, you know what that might can mean. So if you don't get it right straight down through, it's going to get the side and make bing, bing off the side. So I had to chase that ball left and right and all of the places, nobody else there, one ball, one basket. And I worked, and I worked, and I worked, and I worked, and I shot, and I chased balls. And I didn't realize it at the time that uh, chasing those balls for all I could worth to keep them from going in the creek would be of some help and, you know, on the basketball court, but uh, <laughs> so I worked and I worked and I worked, and I look back on that, and it was I played. It was so dark I could hardly see where the basketball was going, and that's all. I, I was just obsessed with it, motivated, motivated, motivated. All right, that's a schoolboy story. I won't tell you the rest of that story. You wouldn't be interested. But uh, I'm I am challenged by this passage where the apostle Paul. He is motivated big time. Now the question is, what motivated him? What pushed him? What made him do what he did to the very end? I see five truths that emerge in verses 1 through 10, and I want to walk you through them, and I think you'll see that there is this common thread that ties all five of these truths together. Let's first of all read verse, I'm just going to read the first verse, the first part of, well, Verse 1 of chapter 5, and they will see the first truth. And then they build on one another, and we'll come down to the conclusion at verse 9 and 10. All right, here it is. Verse 1, chapter 5. He says, for we know. Now, this little word for, Bible students, you're interested in words, aren't you? And what he's doing, he's connecting this. There's a contrast in values that's been evident all the way back into chapter 2 and 3, up through 4. And that there is a contrast in values between the way the world values things and the way the Christian values things. Totally, totally different. For then, he says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. Now what is this tent? Now Paul knew something about tents. You know what? He moonlighted a good deal, you know. 
He did that as a way to support himself on many of his missionary expeditions. And so he knew something about tents. But he's likening the body here. The skenos is the word, the Greek word. He's using, and you'll see it three times here in verse uh, in the first three, four verses, this tent. What is the tent? He's likening the body to a tent. It's a very useful metaphor. What's he doing it for? Because this a metaphor for the physical body is a picture of it's temporary. It's temporary. You don't, well, usually, at least I can say this safely in our culture, you wouldn't live in a tent. And even in Paul's day, most of the people in the city of Corinth, they lived in homes, houses. But he's referencing this because this picture of a tent, when he says it's destroyed, he's thinking of pitching a tent, but yet at some time you move, so you pull up stakes, you fold it all up, and you move on. You break up, you strike camp, breaking camp. We get that picture. I can't get off into all my old camping stories, but you've probably got some too. You know about putting up tents. And there's an interesting house about a stone's throw from here. You wouldn't know where it was unless you really were looking for it. But Beth and I happened to go by there on our walks, and I haven't figured it out yet why it's there, why there's a tent out in the front yard. And it's been there for a while, you can tell. And there's a house, a decent-looking house, and there's this old tent. It's weathering and uh, really not enhancing the neighborhood. But there it is, temporary, temporary. It gets tattered. Weather has its effects upon it. Heat. You've camped out. You know what that's like, don't you? Yeah, it sounds cozy to be in a tent when it's raining. <laughs> if you haven't ditched the tent or if you, the old tents, if you rubbed up against them, you know, you could then cause a leak and all that kind of thing. Tents, tents, tents. All right. He's saying, all right, that's the body. We have a building from God. Now, the question before us at this point, when he refers to this building from God, is what is he referring to here? What's your first instinct on this? Could I draw you out for just a second? What do you think he might be referring to when he says, we certainly, we have a building from God. Now, I'm not, you're not going to be necessarily wrong because there are three different views on this. They're not all equally valid, but still, any guess, what? any impression immediately? Is that... Uh, Okay, that's one view that uh, in my father's house are many mansions and so on. That That is a view, though not the most likely interpretation, is that heavenly house to which we go when we die. Um, uh, yeah, okay, a resurrection body, yes. That's, that's a very, probably the most common, and I'm going to go and use that one um, I say use it. I think that it's, well, let's get the third and I'll explain it. There is another one which presents a challenge in this passage. It is what happens between the time that you die and the, when, do we get a resurrection body when we die? No. No, we, we, we wait until the resurrection. So we have what is known in, in the theology books, the intermediate state. What is that like? We don't have a resurrection body, but are we just uh, in, immaterial, like Casper the Casper the Eric Flintoff, Casper the David Barber? What are we like, ghosts? 
you, you see us, you think you do, you, maybe you don't. Again, there is, you could take resurrection body or intermediate state, and I'll explain this as we move through it, but I'm going to be using resurrection body. I think Paul is definitely, we can say this, this is the bottom line. Paul is looking to being in the presence of the Lord when he dies. And that presence of the Lord, though from the intermediate state to receiving one's resurrection body, there is continuity there. And the continuity is what? You're with Christ. <laughs> and that was what was really pushing Paul along. Though, I, I don't want to minimize the importance of the resurrection body here. And we'll see that. All right. All right. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. All right. Let me just summarize with about three or four statements here on this first caption. First truth. First truth. Death is a reality with which we must all come to terms. We must all come to terms with the fact, have you? Do you? I, hopefully there's no one here that may be that you push back against the very thought. You don't want to think about it. Younger people are not as interested in thinking about it as older people by necessity. They're getting closer and closer as we all are close. Of course, at any moment, God may call us out of this life. But still, death is something with which we have to come to terms. Let me say three, four uh, Point three or four issues out here. Death is inevitable because of the curse of sin. That's just rudimentary, basic theology. God decreed that death would reign as a consequence and penalty of sin. Death is the final outcome of living in a fallen world. All right, I don't have to labor that. That's, that's almost a truism for us. Also, secondly, I would say this about it. Death is not God's frown Upon the Christian. When one dies, that doesn't mean that God is displeased, that one is failed, or that there is judgment or discipline. Not necessarily. Believers, believers that must understand it, it's not God's frown. It's part of his plan. Thirdly, the death of a believer is the completion of the Christian sanctification. It's that, that duration of living before the Lord, pleasing Him, obeying Him, believers then have no need to fear death. And I want to reference something here in a final statement before we go to the, uh, on in the passage. If some of you are familiar with Erwin Lutzer's book, One Minute After You Die, and I would encourage you to uh, access that book. I was going to read a paragraph or two from it. Would anyone just happen to have that copy with them tonight? I left mine at home. I was going to read something from it. Okay. All right. It's, we'll, we'll get through it. You'll never know the difference. All right. So, uh, <clears throat> so in that book, he has a, Erwin Lutzer has a chapter called The Ascent to Glory, Into Glory. And he likens death, he uses several metaphors. They've just come out of scripture. One, that it's a departure and a restful sleep. It is also, he speaks of it as being a collapsing tent and a sailing ship. And he uses the language of it being a paragraph that he discusses a permanent home. And that, yes, we're with the Lord and death, we're with him forever, though 
the place, the location may vary as the Lord returns and we rule and reign with him in the kingdom and so on. Now, I need to put one little bracket in here with regard to a word that I used, a metaphor that's used to describe death, and that's the word sleep. The Bible does use the word sleep at times to describe the visual response to to death. That's the way it looks, like one is sleeping. But this is not to say that the scriptures teach soul sleep. Seventh-day Adventists um, believe in that doctrine, soul sleep. But to believe so is to have to deny many very clear passages, which are clear contradictions to any idea of soul sleep. Um, Did God have to wake up Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration? Hey, come on, I need you here. Wake up. Um, Stephen Acts chapter 7, Lord, receive my spirit. I mean, he's expecting some moment immediately. There's the dying thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Paul says in Philippians where he discusses, where he deals with the thought of what? To depart and to be with Christ is far better. So what do you do with that if you're going to try to inject some sort of a state of soul unconsciousness, soul sleep, rather? And I don't think that it, I'm not going to labor that any further. I just want to go now further into the passage, and I want to take you to the next truth. All right, so we come to terms with death. I don't want to convince you. You know that. So, all right, secondly, let's look down verse 1. Let's go down through verse 4. Here's the way I would, uh, well, let me read it and explain, explain some things in the text, and then we'll see the truth. It goes on to say that then, for in this tent we groan. Now the groaning here, it's like, uh, it's, the groaning is that awareness, and experience, awareness of and the experience of all of the imperfections of living in a mortal body. And the limitations of this present life, that's the groaning. Longing, he says, to put on our heavenly dwelling. Now, what is this heavenly dwelling? Is it the intermediate state, Whatever, however God equips us to function and be with him and other believers until we get a resurrection body or the resurrection body? Put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on it, our heavenly dwelling, clothed upon, we may not be found naked. Now that naked means to be in a disembodied state, to be immaterial, soul, spirit, but without the body. And we will not be bodiless. So this does enter into the discussion with regard to the intermediate state and with the resurrection body. Um, Is in the intermediate state, are we going to be Bodiless? What will it be? You know, the scriptures just leave a, they leave a curtain over that, as it were, a modest curtain, which we just know this much, that whatever God has provided for us to function and to know and to be seen, to be recognized in that state of being until we receive our resurrection body, not to worry, not to worry, we'll be with Christ. So further he says, for while we are still in this tent, that is, this mortal body, we groan, being burdened 
Burdened by what? Sufferings. All that we have to cope with. Not that we would be unclothed. Now, let me pause and make a comment about this being unclothed here. He's not saying that death for death's sake is to be desired. Actually, he sees that state of having either a body that's designed and given to us in the intermediate state or the resurrection body. He's not saying that the body is something that we need to be shed of. (laughs) You know, the Greek world, Plato, Neoplatonic thought, Gnostic dualism, Manichaeanism, that that view, philosophical view of the Greek, in the Greek world of the body as being something that has prison, like a, we're, we're the, like a cage. The body is a cage. And that within us is the soul, spirit, the immaterial. And like a bird, it wishes to be free and just fly away at death and we won't have to, uh, we won't have to inhabit an evil, evil matter. It was based on the philosophical assumption that matter is evil and that to be in the spirit world and free from it is the preferred state. Paul does not sign on to that. Scripture actually runs countercultural to that big time. And that he's looking to a body. Remember, that's what got Paul into some hot water in the city of Athens. You remember that account? When he, he was going along and he seemed to have kind of a receptive audience. And then when he got to resurrection, well, the lid blew off. And they thought, ah, oh, what is this? This seed picker. Uh, he thought he was, they thought he was some kind of philosophical seed picker who was just selling his wares of some uh, thing he had thought up, but not at all. You know that he was coming in on the importance of the resurrection and judgment and so forth. Well, let me give you the, let me give you the summary of verses one and uh, down through verse four. Second truth, second truth. Every Christian has the promise of a resurrection body. Every Christian. And there are two reasons that come out in this passage for that. Number one, Christ's resurrection body guarantees ours. Christ's resurrection body was not a sideshow. It was not entertainment. It was a reality. It happened in time and space. And he is the first fruits. That's Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 15. First fruits, meaning that he's the prototype. And he, he is the model, his resurrection body, for ours. And secondly, the Christian's groaning is an expectation of redemption of the body. So this groaning process through which we pass. Now, pause here for a moment. Pause button. Groaning is mentioned in several ways in the New Testament. It's mentioned, first of all, that creation itself groans according to Romans in chapter 8, verse 21, that we're in some kind of uh, syncopation, if you will, with creation. So I noticed the background for the slides here. It's a picture of some beautiful fall leaves. You've probably thought through the seasons of life and comparing it to birth and life. You know, you can get on, some of you are in the springtime of life, the summer of life, some are in the fall of life. Maybe some are deep into the winter of life. <laughs> we don't realize it. And the point is that nature itself has had the curse of sin set upon it. 
And it's a dying creation. Now, it's not totally corrupt. It's not totally broken. There is enough of it here that the Lord in common grace has left us to enjoy colors and light and streams and birds and trees and flowers and so on and on. But creation groans. It's one great, someone has said, one great symphony of sighs. Birds sing in the minor key. And the Holy Spirit groans within us. Romans in chapter 8 and verse 26. There is a groaning and an identification with our plight, our condition, our inadequacy. And the Holy Spirit comes in and works alongside of us and groans and anticipates for us something grander. And that then goes into the third one, namely believers groan. We groan. You're groaning. Uh, you may not, I'm not hearing any vocalization. Uh, you may at home sit too long in the chair and then you can try to get up. Groaning, though, it's, what is it? It's a sense of sin and what it's done to creation, to our bodies. The limitations that we have, congenital diseases, Oh, that vast array of of possibilities for what hundreds of thousands of possible, you know, viral and bacterial. Though bacteria can be a friend, yet it can be a foe, as you, we all know, and viral conditions. That all enters into it. And then there is injury. Uh, we know the story of the Johnny Erickson is a paraplegic and all her life in a wheelchair not being able to use arms and legs. And people are in that condition and such misery. And then the illnesses that come upon us, illnesses that come upon early in life. Uh, my granddaughter, uh, Meredith, has a friend in, in school, and he's, he's, I think, a junior, junior in high school, and he's in the hospital in Vanderbilt, and he's waiting for a heart transplant. He has this genetic heart condition. He's such an energetic guy. He's just full of life and personality. And there he is. And this life is hanging between life and death and waiting for a donor for a new heart. And then there is death itself. And then there is the aging process. All of this makes up the groaning. So I think what we could say then with regard to what Paul's emphasizing here on this being burdened and this groaning is that it is a normal process. It's God-ordained. It's not unspiritual to recognize the weaknesses, the breakdowns, the frailties, and, and so on of life. Not to be obsessed with it, understand how it fits in the plan of God, but Paul's not through with us yet. All right, we come to terms with death. We know we have a resurrection body that's waiting on us. Let's move to the third one. Look at verse 5. Let me just state the, what I think the truth is, and then we'll look at the fifth verse. We'll analyze it. That every Christian possesses the Holy Spirit who guarantees our resurrection transformation. Aha! God has given us, has given us something in time and space, namely the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, in my life, that guaranteeing us that which is to come. All right, look at the verse, verse 5. He then goes on to say that so, um, I didn't finish out reading verse 4, I see, so let me finish that. But that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal 
may be swallowed up by life. Now, swallowed up by life, you mean the believer's future experience of going out of this mortal body into the presence of the Lord with what God has prepared for us. And that, so we are looking for it to be swallowed up. He wanted, Paul is saying here, he wanted the fullness of all that God had planned for him and just be swallowed by it, enveloped by it. Now, okay, verse 5. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, students of the of the of the word, uh, I guess depending on how far along you are, you're familiar with this word. Maybe even the Greek word arabon. It's a word that means a pledge, a deposit, a down payment. It's used that way in extra biblical Greek. And so, a deposit or a down payment. What he's saying is this: the Holy Spirit is sort of like. Now switch a metaphor here and use switch to it's like an engagement ring. Do they have engagement rings anymore? I, I, is that is that gone? <laughs> I, anyway, you know. So if I say an engagement ring, you understand what I mean. <laughs> that it's that here wear this ring, and it's the promise of the promise of that we are going to get married. It's that kind of thing that the Holy Spirit is that He is. God's, he, his presence in our lives assures us that God has purchased us and that there is a future for us and a future that looks to a resurrection body. Now, let's unfold that just a little bit more. That, we can say it this way, that this resurrection body that he has prepared for us, which is guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit, that The work that the Spirit of God does in a believer's life is powerful. How so? Because to the degree which there is change that takes place, the Holy Spirit superintends that work, be being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is the divine agent in working through the Word and conforming us to the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit is doing it. And so we bear the fruit of the Spirit. And so the change that takes place in my life and in your life as we're in Christ, that speaks volumes. That says things to people like, you know, I knew so-and-so. They used to have a terrible temper. (laughs) Just would fly off the handle at the drop of a hat. Do you know? Have you noticed how different they are? Or, you know, uh, so-and-so, she was just so fear-driven. She just was just paralyzed by so many things. But, you know, since she has become a Christian, there is a calmness and a steadiness and a confidence. It's just extraordinary. And the list goes on just Think of the fruit of the Spirit and the transformation that takes place in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and so on. So that gives witness to what's gone on in the life. And you know what that's saying? There's a future, there's a future, there's a future, and it's the resurrection body. That's what Paul's saying in verse 5. All right, let's go to verse 6 through 8. I'll state the truth. We have the truth. Come to terms with death. You have, and I have the promise of a resurrection body. 
The Holy Spirit guarantees our our uh, resurrection transformation. And fourthly, the Christian is to draw courage from the promise of being at home with the Lord in heaven. Now he's really getting us up close and tight. And this motivation factor really comes into sharp focus now. So here, let's look at the text and see what it says. Verse 6. So, he says, logical conclusion. You know, I love to, by a sidebar, I love going through the text of the scripture. That's just my modus operandi when I handle the Bible. And I deal with words. I just, I've always, always done that because when I was a young Christian, the thing that really lit my fire, I, when I would hear somebody take the Bible and just break it down and say, what I'm feebly trying to do here tonight and would explain it and then make some crossovers and show in life, I said, this is good. <laughs> so I never got over it. So, okay, I have to stop. And, and so when he says, so, that's a therefore. And whenever you see a therefore, see what it's there for. And he's making a logical conclusion. And this is what following Scripture, verse by verse, line by line does. It teaches you to follow the Holy Spirit's logic. So many Christians have the idea of the Holy Spirit is just, it's all about feelings. Ooh, we're feeling creatures. But we've got to think. And the Holy Spirit thinks. That's what he's saying. All right. No extra charge for that. So therefore... Truth, truth, truth. We are always of good courage. We're not dependent on moods and circumstances. Oh, God forbid. And we've fallen into that trap, though, haven't we? Oh, my, some of you are moodies. I know some of you really fight that battle. You are just, um, it's, it's one of, it's a hill that you may very well die on. And I'm not, I'm not spanking you. Others have other, we have other kinds of problems. You can just be a flat liner and you don't know what it is to respond emotionally to things. <laughs> you have to learn how to do that. All right, I'm just saying this, that we're not dependent on moods. We're not dependent on circumstances. And he's saying we know. This is a further ground. So you've got to know something to have this, this confidence. We know that while we are at home in the body, see, there's some knowledge here that creates confidence. We're at home in the body. We are away from the Lord. Uh, no extra charge for this, but Paul uses a little word play here to help. Uh, it's like a tune that haunts us. We get a melody in our mind. We can't throw it off. There are these things in Scripture called paranomasias little word sounds that they kind of go together. And uh, it's like Jack Spratt, ain't no fat, you know, that's, uh, that sort of thing. Well, this one, a dumentes, is the way he says, at home in the Lord, in de muntes. In de muntes, and then we are away from the Lord, is ek de mumen. So there is that intentional sound to help the Corinthians and whoever else would like to buy into the Greek language at a point to remove it. But we can say it in English, and it kind of sticks a bit. Home with the body, away from the Lord. Now, what's that mean? Well, we'll get to it, but first there is a parenthesis. Do you see verse 6? Verse 7, excuse me, verse 7. That's a parenthetical statement. He stops in mid-sentence, and he says this. For we walk by faith and not by sight. 
What's he mean? He means this. He's correcting a possible misinterpretation of verse 6. Say, just in case you didn't understand what I said, that how are we living right now? We don't see Christ with the physical eye. We don't. And what are we doing? We don't live by measuring life by the, those things which are temporal. You know, he spoke of that in chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. And he's saying that being absent from the Lord doesn't mean that the Lord is not with us. He's present with us, but he's present with us now in a way in which is different one day when he will be present with us in heaven. Okay? And what makes the Lord real now to us? What is it? Faith. Yeah. Now, this is not a mood. This is not a feeling. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is that rock-solid confidence in God's revelation that what he said is true, and I'm going to act on it. I don't see him, but I, you know what Peter said? Peter, this comes to mind, First Peter 1. He said, you're blessed because you haven't seen him. Peter had. Peter had. Oh, he had. He had lived with him 24-7, three years. But you know what he went on to say to the, to the believers in Asia Minor? He said, you haven't seen him, but you love him. You haven't seen him, and I hope you love him. You don't have to see him to love him. And that's why he's saying we walk by faith and not by sight, not by appearance, not the way things seem to be. No. Okay, in a parenthesis. Let's get back to the sentence. Verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage. Why are we of good courage? Because on the body, we're away from the Lord, but we'll be with him. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, intermediate state, resurrection body, I'm not going to argue over that here. I'm just saying that he's looking forward to a face-to-face fellowship with the Lord. Actually, that's the little preposition where it says with the Lord. It's a little preposition, uh, pros, that is used here. And it's the idea of fellowship. So therefore, here's the way I would summarize it. The Christian, fourth truth, the Christian is to draw courage from the promise of being at home with the Lord in heaven. We do not, we are not to be people who despair. We have a hope that is pulling us along. And here, let me break it down this way. One, death takes the believer into a higher degree of fellowship with Christ. Yes. You enjoy the fellowship with the Lord now? Hopefully you do. Pleasing him, knowing him, talking with him, comfortable with him. Loving him, obeying him. But when we see him, we'll be in a higher degree. We'll see him just as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So even that seed, knowing that we're going to see him, it does something for us. Secondly, I say here that faith makes the Lord present. Death makes the Lord present, but two different kinds of presence. That we walk by faith, rest on facts, and we therefore have that awareness of his presence. Do you have that? Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Ah, I think many of you do. Know that. Fourthly, thirdly rather, there is no third alternative. No third alternative. No purgatory. No soul sleep. No return from death. Uh, This is a popular, that's another study. I'll let Justin or Eric give you a special message on that, these uh, come back from the death thing. I think you did that one time on something back there a while back. But, the, you know, this gets popular. And somebody said, well, I died and I've come back and I'm going to tell you about all. And they go around and speak in churches and get a book, get a movie. All right, no one returns from death. Um, all right. That can be argued another place another time. And then fourthly, I would say we can groan and have courage at the same time. They're not incompatible. We long for home, but we will have to strike the tent. Yes. And it's our home. And now, Paul did not say he preferred to be dead. Uh, Watch him here. Uh, That's not, uh, no, no, no. Christians are not enthralled with death. Like, oh, I want to die. I want to die. No. He wants to be with Christ. There is a difference. And the person who doesn't get that is going to make some mistakes. So Christ is awaiting our arrival in heaven. Can you imagine that? The Lord's waiting for him. You know, he, he sees us. I mean, he's, he's not clueless, obviously. He sees us. He knows who we are. And, but he's waiting, awaiting our arrival. And we should therefore not fear death. I said, oh, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? No, not at all. I'm haunted by a song. I, t- I almost thought about having it played tonight, but I said, no, that would set the mood too wrong. Uh, there's an old bluegrass song by Ralph Stanley. Does anybody else know this song? Oh, death, it sings in, oh, brother, where art thou? Spare me on to another day. Okay, you don't know. What I'm it's, it's worth it. Beth thinks it's kind of weird, but I'd say it's, huh? huh? David, you know? You know what I'm, okay, you know the song. Uh, and Stanley does a good job with that song. I, I, I listen to it. I listen to, to I have it on the CD. I listen to the truck. All right. Okay. All that. Uh, but God, I, I said that to say this, that we're not in love with death or we are not to fear death. But at the, what we ask for and what we'll get at the right time will be dying grace. But you won't get it until the time of death. So don't don't be anxious. What will I, will I fall apart? Will I suddenly get to that, will I get to that place and say, oh no, what if I'm not saved? What if I'm not saved? Oh no, what if I've been fooled? What if I've been deceived? Oh no, what about that sin I committed, oh, 10, 15, 20 years ago? Oh my, or I will, it'd be so, so painful. I'll have to die death. It will be just so excruciating. Oh, 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 oh. God will give you the grace that you need. When the time comes, not before. Number five, verses nine and ten. Here, I'll summarize it. The Christian is to live longing for Christ's approval. You see how these five truths move along and peak at this point? Here it is. Let me read it. Verse nine. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our, our aim to please him. This is an interesting word. In the uh, New American Standard, it has ambition. 
And we can get a little uneasy about that word ambition because it's so often used as kind of pejorative idea describing somebody who is just driven to just walk all over people and whatever it takes to get become successful. No, that's not what it means here. Literally, the word means to love honor. It's a compound word, to love honor. It's to devote oneself zealously to a cause. It's used three times in the New Testament. Here, Romans 15, 20, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11. From 1 Thessalonians 4.11, he says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And in Romans 15.20, I aspired, it was my ambition to preach the gospel. So it's a good, healthy, strong biblical term is used here. And so he's wanting to be with Christ, and this produces within him, this gives him this passion to do what? To please Christ. For we must, so that's why I say in the first case, We desire Christ's approval while on earth. We want it now. Do you? Does it really delight you to say, I want to please God? You get up in the morning and you get, you collect yourself and get the cobwebs out of your brain and you say, Lord, I want to please you today. Well, that ought to be the way it is. It's our desire to please the Lord. It should be. However, that's not all. We desire Christ's approval when we get to heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. Oh my. This is huge. I do have a little bit of an overlap to verse 11, and I'm going to uh, capitalize on that next uh, Sunday night. But I need to close with this, and I think I can do two things at the same time. Now, what Paul is doing here in looking forward to this body that he's going to receive to be with the Lord, and it's going to come change everything. It won't be a body that's... that's um, hampered by aging and limitations and aches and pains and headaches and cancer and stroke and uh, blood counts that go crazy and getting diseases that they can't figure out. What have you got? We've never seen this before. All that, the burden of living in a, in a mortal body. It would be free of all that, free of all that. But at the same time, he's saying, but you know what? There will be this. Let me read it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due. Payback. He's not talking about punishment of sin here. No, 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 no. That he's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment of sin is taken care of in the work of propitiation, in the work of redemption, in the work of reconciliation. And that is yours at the moment when you're justified before God by faith alone. Sin's not an issue. For he said something, well, I got all those unconfessed sins. That's what it's going to be like. No, Christ died for those. No, but we're not through. Hang on. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether agathon or phalon, good or evil, value, worth. Don't forget something here. Paul has already written written to the Corinthian believers about the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, which is kind of the full mention of the subject of the judgment seat of Christ. His word here is of special interest, bematos. I remember my pastor uh, grew up when I was a kid. He used the word in the pulpit all the time, bema. I had no idea what he was talking about. He He kept talking about the bema, bema. I even knew a lady in the church who criticized him for using that word. Well, I'm glad he used it. And it got whetted my appetite, and now I see it. And you know what he's describing? You know what the Bema was? 
You can see it. I told you about it earlier, I think, in here, that when you go to the city of Corinth, then there twice seen the spot. There is this, there is this wall here of these huge uh, stones, and up at the top, I'm guessing probably from where there was a running track out, out here. Like, this is the running track. Actually, there were even, um, there were even slots there for the feet uh, for um, starting blocks. Thank you. And uh, right there, and there's this long track, and right over here was this, I'd say, maybe about eight, ten feet up, and there's this stone, this judgment seat, the Bema, up there, where the judge awarded the appropriate honors to those who had run well. And so, oh, wait, the Corinthians, they got that picture. They, when he said Bematos, they had it. They knew what he was talking about. But what's the good or evil? What's he speaking of? All right. Let me try to summarize it. I've got just a couple of minutes, so let me accelerate, and I'll, I'll get through. I want to say it, and this is my conclusion as well, to the whole thing that Paul's been developing here. What he's saying here with this good or evil is that we must be self-aware in a Godward sense, every believer, self-aware in a Godward sense. Why do I say that? What are my motives? What motivates me? Why do I do what I do? Why do I teach the Sunday school class? Why do I pray? Why do I go to work? Why am I the kind of person that I am? Motives. The process of maturing and growing in Christ is a long-term process of increasingly purifying our motives and getting them right. Secondly, failure to engage in good deeds has eternal consequences. Now, it's not the determination of whether you're saved or unsaved. That's not the case. But failure to engage in good deeds, as one, one commentator put it, shows a grave lack of vision. So, engage in good deeds. Thirdly, what will it be like to stand before Jesus Christ with our true care? This is a state question here. What will it be like to stand before Jesus Christ and have our true character revealed? not to judge unconfessed sin, but to determine the worth or worthlessness of that which we do. What's going into it? Four, we will either be approved or ashamed. Luke 19, 11 through 26 develops this, that God gives us there, he uses the language of uh, the metaphor talents, excuse me, minus, he used there, uses money in the, 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 that sense of opportunities. God gives everyone in here opportunities, every one of us. What are you doing with them? What am I doing with them? He has also given us gifts to mix with that. Spiritual gifts, natural gifts. God sovereignly uh, bestows upon us the way your mind works, your talents. I'm not using it in the biblical sense, the money sense, but I mean the things that you can do, the way you're wired, your gifts. So he's given us gifts, spiritual as well as natural gifts. He's given to us opportunities. What do we do with them? Are we wasting time? Are we frittering away time? And think of the stuff that goes into doing that. And 
fifth. We have been given, as I said, different gifts. I should hurry on here. Eternity will involve serving and reigning with Christ. Not everyone will serve to the same degree and reign in the same sense. Not at all. Read Matthew 25, 21, 23. Revelation 22, 3 and 5. In the kingdom and in the eternal kingdom, as they, as they merge together, there will be service for Christ based upon the degree to which there has been, the work that's been done is gold, silver, and precious stone, not wood, hay, and stubble. So then how should we live? How should we live? Well, I'll tell you this, I want to take God seriously and take his word seriously and not mess around and waste time. (laughs) Start there. I want to have a biblical, robust faith, confident in what God says. And God, give me the grace to act on it. And I want to look ahead. I want to look ahead and be hungry for heaven. You know what kept me going? dribbling that basketball on those cold, dark days, chasing it and fishing it out of the creek, going, going, going for just a ball through a hoop. (laughs) Schoolboy stuff, yeah. But you know, what I really wanted was when I showed up in the gym and all the guys were coming out for basketball again. And nothing like a gymnasium. I can smell it now. It's not all bad either. (laughs) But it was just... Just the possibilities the gymnasium represented. People in the stands. And then you've got the ball and you're dribbling down and you stop. And you stop about 15, 20 feet up. You go for a jump shot. Swish! Okay. So, (laughs) what does Paul say to us? What does God say to us? That, you know... If we can be driven in these ways to do those kinds of things, how much more should we be motivated and driven? Lord, oh, when I stand before you and my character is revealed, I want it to be for your glory and your praise so that I can serve you in the greatest possible way forever, forever, and forever. So help us, Lord, where weak people Give us grace to move from this passage and go out into life this week, tonight, tomorrow. And please you, for Christ's sake, amen.